you would again uh, take out your Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, and we'll be looking today at verses 14 through 31. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. 
We pray, God, that you would be with this, your servant. Help me to explain and apply this passage of Scripture. Help us to be encouraged by what you are teaching us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, when you read a novel, do you turn to the back of the book and find out how it's going to end? Maybe you do that. Some of you might do this because you want to know, do I even want to bother reading this book? Well, I'm not a big fiction reader, but I do enjoy biographies and reading historic works. And in in all of those, I always know how it's going to end. Because in the end of every, most every biography I read, the subject of that biography will die. But when it comes to the Bible, we already know the end of the story, don't we? We already know that the promised Messiah will come. We know that He will rise from the dead. That he will forgive sin. That all of the promises of God will be fulfilled in him. The scriptures are leading to the end of all things. The narrative is moving in that direction. The redemption of God's people. The ushering in of the fullness of the kingdom. The new heavens and new earth. Eternal life. A perfected and renewed world. The full enjoying of our God and our King, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. We know, for the Scriptures testify to this fact, that Jesus will return, will destroy all His and our enemies. He has defeated sin at the cross. He will redeem all things finally and completely in the end on the day of the Lord. But for now, we wait, making disciples of the nations. And so as we are beginning this study in the book of Genesis, uh, this is now our second sermon uh, from Genesis, we need to have the end in mind. And what we see here, though, in the beginning, the scriptures boldly declare that God created the heavens and the earth. And he did this by the power of his word, which is to say that he spoke all things into existence, ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. And he did this not because he was somehow dissatisfied within himself. It's not because, you know, God was lonely in the universe and needed some companionship. No, in fact, God already possesses perfect community within himself. Now, God created all things out of nothing for His own glory. He did this out of pure joy, out of His own great creative delight. But it's simply, God created the world because He wanted to. It pleased Him to do so. Now, we pointed out last week that as we look at the creation narrative, that there's a pattern to it. Verse 1 declares that God created the heavens and the earth, and in verse 2, that the earth was without form and void. 
Now, God, again, did not create the world out of pre-existing material, nor did God make the universe out of some portion of himself. No, he spoke it into existence. And in doing so, God created the cosmos as a functioning system with cause and effect. Now, the universe is a system that is ordered, it is orderly, but it's not programmed. Which is to say that God didn't simply, you know, input the data like you would program a computer or, you know, to put it more simply, sort of wind up the clock and walk away from it. It's orderly, but it's not programmed. The, The creator is intimately involved in the universe that he created. The universe was created, it was created to be orderly, it's not chaotic. Uh, Isaiah 45, 18 beautifully describes what we mean by this when it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. So the universe is not random. It's not chaotic. It is orderly, it is working, and the Lord is sovereignly in control of all aspects of it. Further, the universe was not intended to simply be an empty and void. You know, we see in verse 1 where God created the heavens and the earth, in verse 2 where it was empty and void, but it wasn't created just to remain like this. It was to be formed and it was to be filled. It was, to be, it was to teem with life. It was to be fruitful. And so the scriptures tell us that God made all things in the span of six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And then that we'll look at next week. We'll look at his, the seventh day next week. But for now, we're looking at the six days. And then within that six days, and this is that pattern uh, that I was mentioning a, a little bit ago. You can break the, the creation narrative into two triads. The first we already looked at last week. On days one through three, God made the form of creation. Beginning first of all on day one with the separating of the light from the darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night. It is here too that we have the reckoning of days and times and seasons. On the second day, God called for an expanse, separating the waters from the, uh, above from the waters below. We mentioned last week as well that what is being uh, used here is what we call phenomenological language. Uh, that is, uh, describing things as they appear to, uh, to us on earth with our, our naked eye, the phenomenon of the situation. So the formerly lifeless and void earth was now being molded and shaped in preparation for life. And so there's this separation of waters on the second day. And then on the third day, God made a further separation, making a distinction between the sea and the dry land. And so we now see again the earth beginning to take shape. And God then provides plants and trees which would produce fruit and seed for food. And so everything in those first three days is formed and is now ready. There's light and darkness, day and night. There are, there's the sky and the seas, lakes and rivers. And you have dry land, which can be fruitful. 
can provide a bounty of food, and it's all organized into a system which will allow it to continue to produce and provide and regenerate. And so God created all things, and He formed that empty and lifeless into something which is fruitful and ready to sustain life. And so it is here now that we come to the second triad of days where God begins to fill His creation. Now, on the very first day of creation, God had said, let there be light. Here, on day four, we have a corresponding work. As God set the great lights in the sky. Look at verse 14. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And so it is on this day that God placed in the sky the greater and the lesser lights. Now again, this is what we call phenomenological language. This is God's way of condescending to us, helping us to understand things from our perspective. And so what we first of all have is the greater light. This, of course, is the sun. And then you have the lesser lights, which are the moon, and then also the stars. Now these are referred to this way, not because the sun is the the largest star in the whole of the cosmos. Uh, There are stars in the sky um, that if you were to actually get closer to them, you'd realize they're actually much larger than our sun. They're not, it's not greater uh, or because of actual size, but it's greater because of our perspective. It's greater to us. It's, it's our sun. Okay? Because of the light it produces here. More to the point is what these lights do for us. That's really the point that's being driven at here. Namely, they're used for the purpose of telling time and determining days. Months. Years. You and I are are enabled to account for seasons of time based on the lights in the sky, the sun, and the moon. Our day, of course, is based on the rotating earth, which produces, from our perspective, the rising and the setting of the sun. Months are based on the moon cycles, and years and seasons based on the Earth's rotation around the sun. In fact, all of the major time measurements, days, years, months, seasons, these are based on the phases of the sun and the moon. God gave these to us. All of these are based on these, with one exception, and that is the week. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest doesn't come from a phenomenon in nature as God had given it, but it actually comes from this text. It comes from God's creation itself. The pattern of six days of work and one day of rest come from God's creative work. And so God gave these lights... So that we can account for time, for days, for seasons. Now, this fourth day does raise some questions for us. 
First of all, are we to understand that the sun, moon, and stars were not formed until day four? Although there was a separation of light and darkness, day and night, and day one. Now, that does appear to be the plain reading of the text. And keep in mind, the fourth day is not the creation of the light itself, but rather the ordering of the lights into their purposes of setting times and seasons. So it could be that the sun, moon, and stars were made in verse 1 in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and then contained light in verse 3 when God said, let there be light. could be that. Perhaps this is the case. It is difficult to be certain on this. Verse 14 assumes that there were lights already and the syntax of the Hebrew suggests an orienting of the lights, which is really what the point is here. God is orienting the cosmos. God is orienting our earth. Whichever way you want to look at it, the real point is that God made all of these things and ordered all of these things. And keep in mind, God is a God of order, not disorder. This is a point the Apostle Paul makes clear to the Corinthian church when they were conducting their worship in in a chaotic manner. God has set the world up in such a way that everything works together, and that includes ways for men to account for time by the use of the greater and lesser lights of day and of night. The Lord has called all these things into existence. He formed that creation, and then He filled that creation. That is, He gave the creation its purpose. For God already had in mind how he would finish his creative work when he forms man on the sixth day. And that man would need to reckon times and seasons. So this is what's happening, right? God has formed the the earth. He's filling it. He's giving its purposes because what God is leading up to is actually the creation of man. And so we come now to the fifth day. And on that day, God begins to fill the waters. By providing the waters under the earth with fish and various sea creatures and the birds which would fly in the skies. Again, this is the filling of the earth which has a correspondence in God's forming on the second day. Remember God had uh, separated the waters from above and below. Now he's filling those waters. Verse 20. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. Now, the Hebrew here is not suggesting spontaneous generation from the waters. It is not that the waters or the sky in any way produce the creatures. But rather, these are the places that they were to fill. God has put them in their place. The sky swarms with birds who fly from one part of the earth to the other. The seas swarm with fish and various other sea creatures. They swim from one place to another. It says in verse 22, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So again, we see God creating a system of regeneration among the animals. In this case, uh, the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. 
They're to be fruitful. They're to multiply. They're, they're to team into these various places. They're to fill the earth. Now, again, on the sixth day, we see verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And so here we see God creating all the other animals who would live on the land. Various mammals, reptiles, the livestock. And they were to do this according to their kind. So you have, for instance, you have various kinds of canines. You have various kinds of felines. You have various types of snakes. Some of you may wonder, why did God bother with snakes? Of course, some of you probably wonder why they bother with cats, too. And some of you would be really mad that somebody would question that. But at any rate, I digress. You have various types. Dogs, cats, cattle, snakes. You have various kinds of animals. And so from these, we get the varieties. We get the varieties of dogs, the varieties of cats, we get the varieties of snakes, etc., Now, everything which God has made was then declared to be good. In addition, you should note a term, or in our English Bible, a phrase. The Hebrew term used for the birds and the fish, as well as the beasts and the creeping things, in English is living creatures. That is the word nephesh, a word which is sometimes translated soul. All of the birds, fish, beasts are called living creatures. Nephesh. Now, unlike plants, which when created were, were part of the form of the earth, animals, that is beasts of the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, they're called living creatures. They're called nephesh. Now, of course, this will bring up many questions for you, which I hope will have answered by the end. First of all, we need to understand that it's not that the animal kingdom has souls, at least in the sense that we would understand that term in our modern nomenclature. But they do have life. And that's really the point. They are, in fact, living creatures. Living in a way which is different from that of plants. Plants are not considered living creatures in the same way. Or they don't have life in the same way as living creatures do. They don't have nephesh. For instance, all living creatures have appetites. They have desires. These desires include drives for food, for reproduction, territory. The creatures have rivalries. They relate to one another in some degree. For instance, a pack of wolves, uh, a murder of crows. Now, of course, we often refer to these things as instinct. But this is part of their being living creatures. So they're living creatures. And so in this sense, the Bible speaks of animals being living creatures in ways which plants are not living creatures. But the Bible does make a further distinction. And that is between man as a living creature... And the rest of the creatures, because man is made in God's image. 
So God has created all creatures of the earth and has given those creatures true life. They have nephesh. They are living creatures. And so, on both the fifth and sixth day, I've kind of combined those together for the purpose of this outline. Uh, The various creatures are to be fruitful, they're to increase in number, and like the plant life, God had designed the animal kingdom to reproduce, to have generations, to fill the earth. God had filled the waters and the sky with the fish and the birds. On the fifth day, on the sixth day, He filled the earth with the beasts, the fields, the various land animals, of all, all sorts of kinds. I couldn't even begin to try to name them all. At the conclusion of each created day, God declares that what has been made is good. All the land animals are called good, but it's striking to note that they're not given a blessing. They, that is the creatures, the other creatures, do not have dominion. They are to be ruled over, actually, by man. Which brings us now to the climax of God's creative work on day six. All of God's labor, this this labor of love over the course of these six days, now culminates with the creation of mankind. Verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, you'll note that previously God's creative acts had an impersonal introduction, such as, Let there be. Here, though, we find the creative work being personalized. This is actually really important to see. It is personalized. Let us create man. Only man in the creation, uh, only man in the creation of man is the divine intent announced. And is the creature given the blessing of dominion over all things? Man is given a special place in the creation. He is given a close relation with his creator. Man is created male and female. He's given reasonable and immortal souls. So when we speak of man being made in the image of God, what we're not talking about is man resembling God physically. Of course, God does not have a body like man. Nor are we saying that man is a carbon copy of God, like if you were to take a photocopy of a piece of paper. You just put us on the Xerox machine. That's not what we're talking about either. No, man being an image bearer has to do with having, a tr- having true knowledge, true righteousness, true holiness. See, the other living creatures, though they have true life, though they have nephesh, they do not possess knowledge, for instance. They are not rational creatures. You're not going to have a philosophical discussion with your dog, regardless of how smart your dog is. Or your cat. I don't want to offend any cat lovers in here. But you're not going to have philosoph- they're not going to have a philosophical discussion with you. At least they won't answer you back. 
They're not rational creatures. Man has the law of God written on his heart. He's able to discern. He's able to rule the world around him. He's able to take dominion over the world. At creation, man had been given the power to fulfill God's law. So mankind has agency. He has a will by which he can choose freely. Humanity has a sense of justice, of goodness. Humanity has a sense of seeking after truth and right. Even in our fallen condition, these these senses of right and wrong and justice and injustice, these are intact, they're marred, but they're intact. These attributes are there. Man is a moral agent in a way in which the other creatures simply are not. In addition, mankind is creative. This should seem sort of obvious, yet I think this is an aspect which, is, which tends to be ignored. God is very creative. We, in fact, you just look at what God has done. You look at the world around you and think, man, God is super creative. Man is creative too. This is part of our bearing the image of God. Man has an imagination. When I say man, by the way, I'm speaking of men and women, just... Just to be clear, humanity has, it has an imagination. We have an ability to see something in our mind's eye and then bring it to pass. Now, I grant that some of us are better at that than others, right? But, but all of us, uh, all humanity has this attribute. The ability to make things. To do something. To imagine and then create. But that's not something I'm very good at, by the way. Just be clear. But I know some of you are. Man is creative. The, man, the point is that humans possess the ability to think abstractly. Again, some of us are better at this than others, but you have the ability to think in the abstract. Again, the other creatures, they can't do this because they're not made in the image of God. Man can make and build, imagine and create. And to summarize, we can say this, human beings are rational creatures just as God is a rational creator. Human beings reflect certain attributes of God, but in a lesser way. Man is not infinite, man is not eternal, nor is man unchangeable. The fact that humans are made to bear the image of God is very significant in our understanding of Christian theology for the work which Jesus does at the cross is to restore man to the perfection of that image. An image which has been marred by the fall into sin. The mankind being made in the likeness of God underscores the fact that man is not an exact replica of God, Nor is man a piece of the divine nature. He is a faithful representation of God and yet distinct from God. God has created a being in which he can have a covenant relationship with. And we'll look at that uh, as we see immediately he does this with Adam and Eve. He relates to them directly. 
So man was blessed with dominion over all the earth. He was to subdue all of the other living creatures. He was to use the produce of the earth for food. He was to be fruitful and multiply. And so God concludes his creative activities on the sixth day. And as he culminates with man, he then declares of its creation, which is perfect, he says that it is very good. What we see here on the sixth day with the creation of man is really the crown jewel of creation. Everything was being put together for the purpose of humanity. God had prepared the earth for the life of his image bearers. From the reckoning of time with the lights to the plants and the animals which man would have dominion over. The earth was formed and filled with his image bearers in mind. And when God had concluded his creation of man as male and female, he declares it all to be very good. Man was to rule the world, he was to care for it. Everything was given for his benefit. And and you'll also note this, God does not withhold anything from his humanity. He had given them all these wonderful gifts. We're to understand from this the perfection and beauty and goodness of the world which God has made for us. Now, of course, this does set up the stage for those things which are yet to come in the narrative, but in particular the fall, right? God has given all the gifts, but then there is a law given. There's one tree not to eat. And it's not that God was withholding good gifts. Anyway, the stage is set for that as well. Man was given all the goodness of the world, and yet in the end rebels against his creator. But there's something else which is being hinted at. So the fall of man is being hinted at and coming. And keep in in mind that the Hebrews were the first audience as they were wandering in the wilderness with the promise of blessings in the land. The land of Canaan was a picture of the heavenly kingdom. That heavenly kingdom, which is in a sense enjoyed as an already but not yet, that's still future for them. There is a time yet to come when there will be a new heavens, new earth. That for us is future as well. This is all being hinted at. Remember I said, we know how the thing ends, right? We want to have the end in mind as we move forward. God is redeeming his creation and we will inherit a kingdom which is imperishable with a king who does not fail where our first father did. Where Adam fails, Jesus does all things well. He is our redeemer. He is our king. This is where things are moving to. And so in this sense, even as we read of the things which are at the beginning, we have the end of the story in mind. We're thinking about what's happening at the end. We're looking forward to that which is to come. And I hope that gives you some sense of comfort and encouragement. That you can rest in the Good Shepherd, your Savior and your King. The one who made this world perfect. 
and is now remaking it perfect as well. He has made all things good. And though the creation has fallen because of sin, He will again restore His creation to what it once was. And that is, as it ends in the narrative, very good. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this narrative of creation that as we look at it, and try to discern the message You have in it. We see that You made all things perfectly, that you had formed the earth, that you had filled the earth, and that you had been pleased to make an image bearer, one that you would enter into a covenant relationship with. We just stand in awe of you. We're amazed that you desire to do this for your glory. And out of great joy. Wow, what a, how humbling this is. And not only did you make all of these things, but even as we messed it up through sin, in Christ you're redeeming it. And so, Lord, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns again, when he will set everything right, and when this crea- creation will be perfected again, renewed, and again, very good. In the meantime, we pray, God, that we would be encouraged and comforted as we look forward to where all of history is headed, even as we study the beginning. May your name be glorified. May we grow in our love for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.